Good morning. Let's start a new series. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew uh, chapter uh, 5. This is where we'll, we'll be in the Sermon on the Mount for the next uh, several months. Uh, for at least, I think, 20 or 21 Sundays, we'll be looking at uh, what is probably the most famous sermon that's ever been preached, and that is the, the Sermon on the Mount preached by Jesus Christ. Give you a few more moments to turn there. We'll be reading verses 1 through 6. Uh, one of those sections of Scripture that's one of the most well-known, and that is the Beatitudes. We'll be looking at the first half of the Beatitudes this morning. It says this in verse 1, Seeing the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and when He had sat down, His disciples came to Him. And He opened His mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let's pray again. Dear Heavenly Father, God, these are Your words to us. And God, I pray that we will, God, allow these words to change us, allow these words to challenge us, God, to know what it means to walk as your Beatitudes tells us to walk. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. On January 20th, this being an election year, a presidential election year, uh, January 20th is going to be uh, the inaugural day. And one of the biggest parts of that day is going to be the inaugural address. And people will be tuned in to their TV sets in excitement, or maybe this election year in, in, election year in horror, um, as the new president tells us what their presidency is going to be about. Man, it's, it's an important, especially that first inaugural address. This is what my presidency is. Is going to be about. These are the problems that I see. These are the things that I'm going to fix. Well, I think the Sermon on the Mount can be thought of as Jesus' inaugural address. You see, Matthew is, is the gospel that was written for the purpose to show the kingship of Jesus Christ. It was, it was written to prove to the Jews, this is your king. And so right here at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus goes on this mount and he begins to describe and to command what he wants his people to look like. That if you're going to be a part of Jesus' kingdom, this is what he wants you to aim for. You know, it's, it's, we're in kind of revolutionary times, right? People... Uh, we just live in, in a time where people are really wanting to kick against the status quo. This election year, we've, we've had the people that have felt the burn, right? Bernie Sanders, like, this is our guy, because he's not like everybody else. And many, and, and Trump has filled coliseums on his anti-PC type attitude, and people, people are responding to that. Hey, that goes against the, 
against the culture. It's countercultural. It, it kicks against the status quo. And so we find ourselves as a people just really desiring to go against what's been established and, and they want to be countercultural. Can I tell you this morning that if we would all turn to the Sermon on the Mount and take seriously its commands, no organization on the planet would be as countercultural as the church. No one could hold a candle to the church living out just the Sermon on the Mount. Every, every paragraph of the Sermon on the Mount is, is bursting forth in contrast of saying, hey, this is what some people are like, but Jesus says, this is what my people are to be like. Sometimes He takes, uh, takes His people and compares them to uh, the pagans, the, the godless. He says, I don't want my people to be like that. I want them to be like this. And sometimes he takes his people and he, and he compares them to the coldly self-righteous religious and says, I don't want my people to be like that either. And he describes, this is what I want my people to be like. But overall, the theme of the Sermon on the Mount is what a follower of Christ is supposed to look like. And spoiler alert, a follower of Christ is to be very, very different from the world. So let's jump in this morning to the first four Beatitudes found in Matthew 5. These first four Beatitudes really focus mainly on us interacting with God. And the other Beatitudes more focus on our interaction with people, with the world. First, we want to notice that our spiritual Poverty brings us desperately to God. Brings us desperately to Christ. It says, it starts, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is where the Sermon on the Mount begins. Jesus says, Blessed are those who are poor in the spirit. And this is important. This is exceedingly important that he begins there because what Jesus is about to do is to lay out very difficult commands. Very difficult commands. And he wants to say on the outset, you cannot do this on your own. You are going to have to have my help, my assistance. You will fall short of what I'm going to command you. There are many who will, who will speak, false teachers will speak about the Sermon on the Mount as, hey, this is a retelling of the Old Testament law. And so this is just the New Testament's version of the law that if you keep these things, then you will be saved. Like this is the standard. You've got to keep all this, and if you keep all this, then you're going to be saved. That's not where he goes. That's not where this comes from because it starts at the very beginning saying, you're poor in spirit. You're poor in spirit. The, the law of God, regardless of if it's the Ten Commandments handed down from Mount Sinai or the, uh, the law of the Sermon on the Mount handed down by Jesus on the mounts, the law of God always has a double purpose. 
This is very important, so please listen to me here. The law of God, when God commands something, it has two purposes. The first purpose is to show the non-Christian that he cannot please God on his own. And that he needs God to intervene to save him. Because if you look at any, any person's life in light of the Sermon on the Mount or the Ten Commandments, you will find that their life is lacking. That it does not, it cannot bridge that gap that exists between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And so the per- first purpose of the law is to look at it and go, I'm in trouble because I can't do this. And the second purpose of the law is to show the Christian how he is to live in such a way that will be pleasing to God. The Reformers sum, summed it up this way, and I think this is, this is beautiful. It says, the, they said they would sum up these two purposes in, in this sentence. The law sends us to Christ to be justified. And Christ sends us back to the law to be sanctified. Do you, do you understand? We come to the law, we come to the Sermon on the Mount or the Ten Commandments, we come there and we go, uh-oh. I'm not living that way at all. I, I can't live that way. And we go to Christ and we say, Christ, I, I need You. I, I need Your righteousness because I don't have it on my own. And then Christ gives us His righteousness, His keeping of the law that Christ did. And then he says, now go back to the law and begin to try to live according to that law. You're saved. You are justified before me and that will not change. But you go back to the law because I've given you a new heart to go back and love the law and and to begin to be, be sanctified to be more like Christ. The Sermon on the Mount is in my mind the most difficult series of commands in all of Scripture. To me, much more difficult than the Ten Commandments because what Jesus says is basically takes the Ten Commandments and He says, you think you're keeping them. You think you're keeping the Ten Commandments. But let me tell you what the Ten Commandments really mean. It's a lot more than outward showings of keeping the law. It's about what's going on in your heart when no one sees where you're interacting with God's law. Are you keeping the law there? Martin Luther said this about the Sermon on the Mount. He said, it is Moses, talking about the law of Moses, the, it is Moses quadrupled. It is Moses multiplied to the highest degree. These are very difficult commands. So, so right here at the beginning of this powerful, hard law, This law-filled sermon, he says, Blessed are you who remember that you're poor in spirit. You will have the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who know that you bring nothing spiritually to God's table. There is nothing in and of yourself that will cause you to want to keep, to want to keep the Ten Commandments, much less to keep them. 
This poor in spirit at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is a neon sign that points us to Jesus Christ. And it points us there to go to Him as we sang this morning and say nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the, the cross I cling. Naked come to Thee for dress. Helpless look to Thee for grace. To the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That is what this poor in spirit is telling us. Before the first law is laid down, he says, you can't do it. So go to Jesus Christ. Because He has done it. He has kept the Sermon on the Mount and the Ten Commandments. Then and only then do we come back to the law in an attempt to grow in our obedience, to be more like Jesus, to grow into the ra- that righteousness that God has given us in Christ. We must always, always keep in mind the double purpose of God's command. If the law is only what Christ did, the law is only what Christ fulfilled, therefore it doesn't apply to me, then you're going to become antinomian. And that just means that, man, it's grace. The law doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want to. And if that is your heart, as if that is your heart, then I would say you're not a Christian. Someone who can, who can receive God's grace and say, awesome, I don't have to keep his commands anymore. That person is not a Christian. But also. If the law is only commands that I can try to keep, then what do we become? We become self-righteous Pharisees. And we, we bring the law down, so finally, okay, I think I'm meeting the law, therefore I'm going to go to heaven. And what that is, is morality without Jesus. And in the commands of God, if you don't interact with both of these purposes, you lose Christianity. If you're anti-law, then you're showing no repentance. You're showing you're not a Christian. If you're just all about law and no Christ, then you don't have Christianity. It's only when we interact with these two purposes of God's law do we know that we know Him. Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God belongs to the desperate. It belongs to those who realize their spiritual poverty and flee to Christ. But there's more in just the reality of our spiritual poverty. It's also about the mourning of that poverty. Our mourning brings us desperately to repentance. Our mourning brings us desperately to repentance. Verse 4 tells us that blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's not, this, this verse isn't about mourning in general, okay? So understand here, this isn't just saying, hey, when a family member dies, you're going to be comforted. You're blessed because you're mourning. There are countless verses that talk about that, right? There's countless verses that, that it says that, that when you hurt, God comes to you in that hurt, of that loss and, and comfort you. It's all over the Bible. 
But this particular verse is really referencing, again, that poverty of spirit. It's mourning sin. It's being not okay with the sin in the world. It needs to go farther than just seeing our poverty of spirit. We need to to mourn that poverty. We, We need to mourn whatever exists outside of the righteousness of God. We should mourn the sin that, that is in us. Right? A lot of times we like to man, put all that in the back of our mind because I don't like to think about what a bad person I am. I don't like to think about the parts of my life that are not conformed to Jesus yet. It's painful to think about. But the Beatitudes tell us is that man, you've got to mourn it. You've got to bring it out into the front of your mind. And think about where are you lacking? Where are you living unrighteously? And to think about that and to dwell upon that and to weep over it and mourn it. This is God's call for us. To mourn the sin in our life. And we should also mourn the sin of those we are in community with, with those we love, those that we are in small group or church with, is that when we see sin in their life, We mourn it. We mourn it enough to pray for them. And we mourn it enough to to maybe lovingly go to them and and just talk to them about that sin. Because because until we mourn as a community with each other's sin, we're not going to address that if we're just leaving it all to ourselves to see and to analyze our sin. And of course, we should mourn the sin that's in the world. That's what Jesus did. We, we see that Jesus in righteous anger made a whip and He rushed into the temple to the money changers and He turned over their tables and He chased them out of the, the temple because of the sin that was present in that temple. Jesus wept over the reality of death that, that, that sin had brought into the world. He wept over that death at, the friend's, at His friend's funeral even though he was about to raise him from the dead, he wept the fact that death exists because of sin. We see he wept over Jerusalem and he wept over their lack of repentance. And he longed to, 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 to take them under his wings and, and they wouldn't. The one who truly knows and loves God will be the one who mourns the things in the world that exist that are out of step with God's revealed will. As as culture seems to continue to run away from God's commands, we as Christians must never lose that sorrow in the pit of our stomach when we see the things that exist in the world that are anti-God. It should stir our heart to weeping what we see in the world. If we stop weeping over the sin in the world as the church, the church and the world will be in a bad place. But it's not just mourning for the sake of mourning. It's mourning that brings repentance. Repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10 tells us, I think, about the the type mourning that that Jesus is commanding of His people right here. 
says this, for godly grief, for godly grief, for godly mourning, for godly grief produces what? A repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. As someone who counsels often, I'm always amazed at how dark it is at the beginning. Because usually someone is not in my office because things are going great. Many times they're in my office because they've hit rock bottom. They've been caught in a sin or, or, or they've, they've just come to the reality they can no longer deny what is wrong with them. And usually that first moment there is, there is weeping. There's sadness. There's discomfort as, as they have to tell me about their problem that they're coming about. That they, they need to reveal what's going on in their life. And, and, and when, it's, when it's a sin, they're just so... When it's their own sin, they're so moved and, and sad. But let me tell you something. That is usually not the beginning of the end. It's the beginning of great, great things in their life. The sad place of godly grief is the starting place for something beautiful. And that beautiful thing is called repentance. When you mourn to the point where you say, I've got to change. Through God's grace and through God's help, I've got to nip this in the bud. I've got to change. I'm hurting everybody with this sin. It's a grief that leads to repentance. It leads to change. We see here the purpose is not a perpetual place of mourning, but a mourning that leads to what? To comfort. It says, if you mourn in this way, God will comfort you. And next we see our blessed meekness brings others to God. It says in verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. See, we're slowly moving from the internal to the external. We see that we are poor in spirit. We, we mourn that poverty. And, and what begins to happen? We begin to have meekness as we walk in this life. Those who have been before their God realizing their sin and mourning their sin will go into the world with meekness. Christians should be meek. Because we are those who have seen our poverty of spirit. We've mourned our poverty in spirit. Not weakness, mind you. Meekness is not weakness. It is strength under control. Think about Joseph who had been sold into slavery and he rose to power in Egypt. And, and what happens is brothers end up coming to Egypt, kneeling down before him, they don't know who he is. He has the power to wipe them away. He has the power right then to just call someone in that's off with their heads. These men that had done him so wrong. But what does he do? He offers forgiveness. That's not weakness. 
He was not weak at any moment. He had the power of Egypt behind him to these brothers that had done him wrong. But he was meek. He didn't give them what they deserved. He passed on his right for vengeance so that they might have life and their family might be saved. David, David looked weak to Goliath. Goliath found out real quick he wasn't weak, he was meek. He may have didn't look like much, but he had the power of God behind him. And we can see in Jesus and in the way that he laid down his life for, for us on the cross that all he would have to do is, is speak a word and there had been nothing but toenails and hairs left of those who were crucified. If that much. As he call, could have called legions of angels to his aid to destroy those who were nailing him to the cross. There was no weakness at any moment. There was meekness as he passed on his rights as God to allow Himself to have our sins placed upon Him so that we might have life. That's not weakness. And meekness is certainly not cowardice, being afraid. That's not meekness at all. As we, we often, we rightly remember courage on the battlefield of those who, who fight in wars. And, and we're inspired by, by their strength and, how, and their courage. But let us not forget the stories of those who were courageous in meekness. I think of Roland Taylor and Bishop Ridley and John Bradford, men of faith who were led to be burned at the stake for their right teachings of the Scripture. And what did they do when they got to their stakes that they were about to be burned on? They kissed them. Because it was their pleasure to die for Christ. I think about Obadiah Holmes after receiving 90 lashes with a whip, turning his back to jelly for Jesus. And he looked at those magistrates who had ordered that and he said, you strike me with roses. Christian history is full of these stories of of those who were courageously meek, who were willing to self-sacrifice themselves for the cause of Jesus Christ. It still goes on today around the world. But are Christians in our society generally thought of as meek? In our day, many see us as, as prideful, as politically expedient, as know-it-alls, as judgmental, and some of these assessments are gross caricatures. And some of these assessments are earned. Let us be confidently meek. Let us love to speak the truth boldly but with meekness. Let us be bold, but at the same time let us be meek. When we allow ourselves to be brought low before holy God... That is where meekness comes from, and that is where boldness comes from. John Bunyan said this, he said, He that is down need fear no fall. So we as Christians, that's who we are. We, 
We recognize our poverty of spirit. We recognize that apart from Christ, we are nothing. So it's hard to knock us down. Because we are already meek because of the wonderful gospel that we did not deserve. And lastly, we see a hunger. We see our hunger for righteousness makes us desperately pursue God. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Are you keeping up with the progression here? We're, 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 first we realize we're poor in spirit. Then we mourn that poverty. And then it causes us to be meek and to walk with meekness on this earth. But here we seek to be filled again. Right? We, we don't just sit there in sackcloth and ashes saying, I'm so bad, I'm so bad, I'm so bad. No, we want to go to God and say, God, now that I'm empty, I pray that, that you would fill me with your righteousness. Fill me with the things that, that you love. Make my desire for the things that you desire. First, we, we hunger for the righteousness of God. That's the first hunger of the Christian. It's the hunger, it's the righteousness spoke about in Philippians 3 9. It says, to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that comes from the Ten Commandments, that comes from the Sermon on the Mount. A righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is the first hunger that the that the Christian must hunger for because this is the hunger that leads to salvation. That when we realize that, again, that our righteousness can never, our righteousness, our goodness, the Scripture tells us this is filthy rags. There's no way for it to bridge the huge gap between us and God's holiness. When we look at our righteousness and, and even our righteousness is corrupt and we, we eventually have to hunger and say, God, I can't do this. I need a righteousness from out there. Because when I look in here, there is no righteousness that can save me. I need a righteousness, an alien, as the theologians say. I need an alien righteousness. And that is the righteousness of God that's brought to us through the life and death of Christ where He fulfilled the law, He fulfilled the Ten Commandments, everything in the Old Testament. He fulfilled the sermon, the commands in the sermon that He's about to preach that we're about to look at in the weeks ahead. He fulfilled it all. So that all who hunger for that righteousness would receive it in faith and be saved. That's where salvation happens. There's a hunger for the righteousness of God. Let me ask you something. Are you here and you've been trusting in your own righteousness? You've been trusting on what you can do for God and that maybe 
you can do enough that, that the good will outweigh the bad and you'll get to go and be with Him in heaven. You'll get to be saved. I tell you this morning, there is no salvation there. There's only salvation when you realize that you are in absolute poverty and the only righteousness that can save you is a righteousness outside of yourself and that is the righteousness of Christ that you can receive if you put your faith in God, if you believe in Him, if you believe in that righteousness, if you believe in the cross on which He died, that He died as your substitute for your sins so that you might receive that righteousness. Second, we hunger for the personal righteousness that comes through sanctification. 2 Timothy 2.22 It says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. Faith and love and peace along with those who call upon the name of the Lord, who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. Those that receive the righteousness of God along with that righteousness, receive a new heart. And that new heart is a heart that will desire to keep God's law. It is a, desire, it is a heart that will desire to fight against sin. It's a heart that, yes, it will not be glorified until, until the end. But it is a heart that will seek to be more righteous to grow into the righteousness that we receive at our justification, to begin the progress of, of being more like what Jesus commands us in this sermon to be. We hunger initially for the righteousness of God apart from us, and then we hunger for righteousness that through God's grace, through the help of His Holy Spirit, He helps us, He manifests in our life as we seek to be sanctified, to be more like Him. And third, we hunger for righteousness in the world. Folks, it's not just enough to mourn the bad that's out there. We must hunger for righteousness to be out there. Take, for instance, orphans. The fact that Parents can't take care, or maybe the parents have passed, but oftentimes is the case, they, in addiction or, or, or whatever, they can't care for their own kids. That's unrighteousness. How do you kick back against that darkness? Many people in our church are doing it by opening up their home to care for those orphans and to adopt those orphans into their family. That is hungering for righteousness, that to see the unrighteousness in the world and want to meet it with righteousness. Kids in, in, in the school system who we see just need some positive influence, that their life has a lot of unrighteousness in it and a lot of unrighteous examples. Many in our church have, have stepped up to say, I'm going to kick back at that unrighteousness by trying to be a positive influence through mentoring in the local schools. That's kicking back at the darkness. 
or you know it's unrighteous that unrighteousness that that brings hunger into our world and many go to the salvation army to you know a couple times a month to kick back at that unrighteousness by feeding somebody a hot meal Our many have looked upon the world and seen the need for Jesus on, and then and the unrighteousness that that exists and and people that don't yet believe in God, whether it's in uh, at Albuquerque at the reservation or Chicagoland where we have people now, or whether it's Nicaragua or Ukraine. And to say their need righteousness needs to be there, and that comes in the form of bringing the gospel to people. They don't have the Lord as the Lord of their life. We must hunger for righteousness in the world. Not just mourn the condition of the world, but find a way to kick back at it with righteousness. So let us be poor in spirit. Let us realize our poverty, our need of Christ, and let us mourn the condition of our hearts. When we sin, let us mourn it and bring it out into the forefront of our mind and think about how to destroy it with repentance. And let us walk in this, on this earth in meekness, in bold meekness. And let us hunger for righteousness. Let us hunger for righteousness in our own hearts. Let us Hunger for righteousness in the world. I'm going to ask for you to please stand as Brother Donnie and the musicians come. God is calling us to respond this morning. This, I mean, the Beatitudes... And just a powerful, powerful message. And I, I pray that He's doing, has done something in your heart this morning. That you need to do some business with Him. Maybe you've realized that you have never hungered for the righteousness of God. You've never realized that poverty that you had and that you've been trying to do it on your own. I would love for you to come down and let me talk to you about how to, how to be filled with the righteousness that only comes through salvation through faith. Please respond however God's put on your heart to respond this morning as we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, move in us. God, help us to realize our deep, deep need of You. God, we are poor in spirit. God, we are needing to mourn some things in our lives this morning. God, we need to walk with humility, with meekness. God, we need to find ways to kick back at the unrighteous by hungering for righteousness. In the depths of our heart and, and in, in the farthest reaches of the earth, God, help us to long for righteousness. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.